grateful for Jesus, and, and we do confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. We believe that. We honor you. We praise you, God. We bow our knee before you. We bow our hearts before you now, Lord, because you humbled yourself, and who are we that we shouldn't humble ourselves before you? So we, we come to you now and pray that you would speak to us and teach us and help us to understand this section of Scripture, please, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Okay, thanks. I, I get to do that. Uh, thanks for your prayers for my dad. He's home now, and he's doing much, much better. It was a very, very rough night on Monday, but God saw him through, and he's 91 years old, and you know, sometimes he goes through these, these situations and you wonder, is this the time? But not God's time. So he's home and he's doing well, praise God. Family, if you would turn to Acts chapter 21, we're going to be studying verses 1 through 14 this morning, and the title of today's message is God's Will Be Done. And, you know, as we get into this passage, what we're going to find is that uh, through many areas of, of thought, there's some different interpretations of how this scripture, what it means, how it's handled, and so forth. But I think that God will show us clearly, at least he's shown me clearly, and I hope he shows you clearly what his will is for this passage, too, and bring us to understanding. So just to, to tell you where we are in the scripture, Paul has just left the, the city of Ephesus where he spent three years ministering to the Ephesian elders, preparing them uh, to hand the responsibility, the oversight of that church to them. He's moved on now. He's headed to the city of Jerusalem where he'll wrap up his third missionary journey. And his desire, if you remember, is to arrive in Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Jewish feast of Pentecost. And accompanying him, accompanying Paul, there's Luke, uh, Dr. Luke, the apostle, Silas, and there's other men that have accompanied him from the cities which Paul had previously visited. Let's read verses 1 through 14. It tells us this, the scriptures tell us, and it came to pass that after we were gotten from them, and others departed painfully from them, had launched, and we came to a straight course unto Kus. In the day following unto Rhodes, and from thence into Patara, they're sailing now, and finding a ship sailing over unto Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forth. Now when we had discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand and sailed into Syria and landed in Tyre, for there the ship was to unlaid her burden. In finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul, through the Spirit, that he should not go to Jerusalem. And when we had accompanied the, accomplished those days, we departed and went our way. And they all brought us on our way with wives and children till we were down, at, down out of the city, and we kneeled down on the shore and we prayed. And when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship, and they returned home again. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And the next day we that were of Paul's company departed and came unto Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip, the evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. 
And the same had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's belt or girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and they that of that, of that place besought him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What mean you to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. So in verse 1, we see where it says that we were gotten from them. In other words, they departed. Paul and his team departed. But it has a much deeper meaning than that. And when you look a little bit deeper into the scripture, you find that it's it means he painfully departed, torn at the heart, apart from them because of the great love that they shared and not only ministering the gospel, but the fellowship they enjoyed too. And it shows how much these, these men, these elders, they loved Paul. When you look at Paul's life, you know, from a believer's standpoint, you think, what's not to love in this man? And that's how the Ephesian elders viewed him. They, they were strengthened by him, they were taught by him, they fellowshiped together, they loved one another, and it was a very, very difficult departure for them. They missed him. So they began this journey by ship. They were in Miletus, remember, to Kos and to Rhodes and Patara, and those are all in the Aegean Sea. And when they arrived in Patara, they took a larger ship. They took it from there across the Mediterranean Sea to a city called Tyre, which is in present-day Lebanon. We're told in verse 3, they passed by Cyprus to Tyre and stayed there for seven days. They unloaded the cargo that was on the ship, and then they reloaded the ship as well. Now, notice here, we're, we're kind of entering into a new section in the book of Acts. The personal pronoun now being used is the word we, which means that the apostle Luke, under God's Holy Spirit's direction, he recorded, he wrote this book, means Luke has rejoined Paul, the apostle, in this journey. And at the end of verse 3 and into verse 4, there's something that's very, very significant here. In verse 4, it says, in finding disciples there. Now, it doesn't mean that they just stumbled over them. It means that they made a determined effort to seek out other disciples, other believers for the purpose of fellowship. And they stayed with them for seven days. And you see, they understood the importance of fellowship. And we need to understand the importance of fellowship too, don't we? Now, how wonderful it is. I mean, you can have a very difficult week, a very difficult morning, and you arrive here in, in, in the fellowship, and you see the, the saints, and you see the love of Christ. You experience the, just the beauty of the connection that we have in Jesus Christ. And something changes, doesn't it? And if it doesn't, it ought to. I encourage you to join together with, with one another and to learn to appreciate one another and to love on one another and be strengthened by one another. That's what the body of Christ is all about. We build one another up in the faith. And it's precious. And this is what, one thing that Paul needed very, very much. What a great encouragement it must have been to Paul and to the others as they just left the sweetness of this fellowship in Ephesus, and now they need company. They need fellowship with others. 
So here they are. There's other disciples there in Tyre that were able to encourage them and to strengthen them. Now, the mention of there's disciples in Tyre, it indicates there was a church there, probably founded and brought together as a result of persecution when Stephen, the deacon, was stoned. Remember, through persecution, the gospel spreads. You know, oftentimes people think, well, there's persecution, Christians are being persecuted, murdered, and whatever, and it does happen, sadly. But, you know, and we see this in the, in the book of Acts where this kind of persecution, it caused the disciples to spread. And when disciples spread out, what happens is the gospel is shared. They're faithful to share the gospel. And when the gospel gets shared, you know what? People get saved. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those that, all those that believe, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So the gospel is spread. And by letting us know that there's disciples there in entire means that the Holy Spirit is letting us know that people are getting saved everywhere. Everywhere the gospel is being shared, the gospel is changing lives in the then-known world at that time, all over the then-known world. And certainly, you know, as we've been studying and reading through the book of Acts, we know it's about the ministry of the apostles and the birth of the early church. But that's not the only record that was taking place. Many other things were happening, and so many people were getting saved. These saints entire are miracles of salvation. And you know, so are you. You are a miracle of, of salvation. The people entire, they heard the gospel. And when the gospel is shared, guess what changes? We change. People change. And here they are. They're now born again by God's Holy Spirit. And I believe it's very helpful to us. And I think you would agree with me too that every once in a while, it's important that we, we stop and we consider the miracle that we are. You are, if you belong to Jesus, you are a miracle. You know, we often look at miracles as something perhaps a little bit different than that. But the greatest miracle is a person brought to salvation, being made a very brand new creation in Jesus Christ, which means that your heart has changed. I mean, when you consider your own life before you knew Jesus and you compare that to your life now, I I'd find it very difficult to believe that you haven't witnessed and, and noticed a change in your life. God says, I've given you, I take out your stony heart. I'm giving you a brand new one, a heart of flesh, a heart able to love as I would love. You know, minds are renewed. We, we begin to think differently, don't we? Things perhaps that we thought were once okay. We look at through the lens of the, whole, of the Holy Scriptures and through the power of God's Holy Spirit, and he says, well, you know, it's not okay anymore. And that's the conviction of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us through the new birth to change. And we become temples of God's Holy Spirit. And that's a miracle. You know, I was destined for hell. And Jesus plucked me from the fires of hell and set my feet upon a rock. And I follow Jesus. I love Jesus. I know that he has saved my life. And now I know that I know that I know that I'm bound for heaven. And it's because of what he has done. He didn't leave it up to me. He gave me the faith to believe that he is who he says he is. 
that he's a God that not only authored salvation, but he's a God that finished salvation in my life too. And I praise God for that miracle. So it's important for us to remember that miracle because it's the one that's nearest and dearest to your heart, isn't it? It's you. How much more personal could it possibly be? Well, during Paul's stay with these people, the disciples entire, it was shared with him that they were told by the Holy Spirit that Paul wasn't to go to Jerusalem. And we see in verse 5, we see Paul's departure from Tyre. In the entire congregation, there's families, their, their wives, their children. They came to say their goodbyes on the shore, and there they knelt down and prayed together. What a beautiful send-off, isn't it? You know, picture the folks meeting him on the shore, families together, praying together, and of course sending them off in the Spirit of God. So they departed, as we see in verses 6 and 7, and it tells that the people then returned home. And from there, Paul and company finished their journey from Tyre to Ptolemais, which is present-day Akko, which is in northern Israel. And there they greeted the brethren there, and they stayed with them for a day. From there they traveled to Caesarea, a very, very beautiful coastal town on the Mediterranean Sea in Israel. And it tells us in verse 8, and the next day, we were of Paul's company, departed and came to Caesarea. Caesarea was the center of the Roman government in Israel at that time. This is where the Roman centurion in Acts 10 was saved, Cornelius. We got a photo of Caesarea when we were there in 2017. And you can understand why the Romans liked it. Can you bring that photo up for me, please? It's in there somewhere. Anyhow, <laughs> if it does pop up, raise your hand and I'll, I'll, I'll slow down. But it's a very, very beautiful, beautiful area right on the Mediterranean Sea. Absolutely gorgeous. The Romans occupied it, became the center. And this is where Paul would go. And there he met up with Philip the evangelist. Philip, as it tells us here, was one of the deacons or he was a deacon appointed in Acts chapter 6. And then God would use him to minister in Samaria where God was moving very powerfully. And then the Spirit of God spoke to him and said, Philip, I want you to leave. I want you to go to Gaza, which is desert. You know, if I was Philip, I'm thinking, God, you're doing wonderful things here. Now you want me to leave? But no, he, he immediately went. He obeyed the Lord. And God had a plan. He said, while you're there, Go, and you're going to meet with an Ethiopian, an Ethiopian eunuch who became saved, water baptized, and then he brought the gospel to Africa. God's amazing. You know, Philip, leave. You're going to meet up with this guy. You're going to connect. He's going to be reading the scriptures. He's going to ask you a question. Who is this about? And he's going to get saved. And he's going to get water baptized. And then he's going to go to Africa to bring the gospel there. You see, God's got a plan, doesn't he? Well, here we find Philip once again. This is now 20 years later in his hometown of Caesarea. He's the father of four daughters. And each of them, the scriptures tell us, is a prophetess. It's the Holy Spirit's way of sharing with us that very spiritual and godly women. They, they didn't occupy the office of a prophet, but they were used as mouthpieces for God. We're told in verse 10 that they stayed in Caesarea for many days. 
And during their, their stay in Caesarea, they encountered a, a prophet named Agabus who came from Judea. And verse 11, it tells us that he did kind of an odd thing. Agabus, he, he gave an object lesson. He took Paul's belt and he tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the man that owns this belt will be bound by the Jews and brought to the Gentiles. Now, this wasn't the first time that Paul had encountered Agabus. Agabus went to the church in Antioch. We saw this back in chapter 11 when Paul was, was just little known there. And the Lord is moving powerfully in Antioch, and they needed help. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to find Paul and bring him back to Antioch, where Paul taught the people in the church there. And now Agabus went to Antioch at the same time and prophesied that a drought would come so the people would be prepared. And it happened just as Agabus had prophesied. So he's got a proven track record. Now the reaction of the Christians in Caesarea, they began to plead with Paul. Don't go to Jerusalem, it says, and when they heard these things, both we and they that of that place besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered in verse 13, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And they realized that their pleading with Paul would fall upon deaf ears. And he said, and he would not be persuaded. He said, they said, so we ceased speaking, saying, the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. And then Paul and his company went to Jerusalem. Now, you may not be aware that there's a considerable debate uh, regarding this section that's contained in the scriptures here. Remember in verse 4, it said the people said through the Spirit that Paul shouldn't go to Jerusalem, but Paul went anyway. And as a result, all kinds of issues happened in his life. But as the Holy Spirit had told him that bonds and afflictions await him as he continued his journey. Now, it's important for us to kind of get our bearings here for what's taking place because it's going to determine how we view the Apostle Paul and interpret the book of Acts in the final chapters. Is he, is he an obedient servant of the Lord or is he disobedient? Which is it? Well, there's two schools of thought on this. On one side, they say that Paul, well, he made a horrible mistake in going to Jerusalem where he was ultimately arrested. Their argument is that the Holy Spirit clearly warned Paul not to go, but he went anyway. And they argue that Paul was so blinded for his love for the Jewish people that he'd be willing to give up his own salvation if it meant the Jews would be saved. In fact, he said this in Romans chapter 9, verse 3. We're going to read this from two different translations. First in the King James. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And then in the New Living Translation, it says, For my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters, I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. So, you know, clearly Paul had a, had a heart for the Jewish people. But to him, it seems though he had in his mind that if I just had one more chance, one more opportunity to preach the gospel to the Jews at Jerusalem, to reason with them once more from the scriptures that Jesus is the promised Messiah, 
Paul's thinking is, I know I can get through to them. He knew exactly how they viewed Jesus. He knew how their minds worked. He knew how they felt about Jesus. He understood them because he shared the very same views about Jesus and Christianity before he was saved. So he believed he was the voice that would ultimately cause a light bulb in their mind to go off about Jesus and who he is and why he came. And of course, we know Paul, a former Pharisee, a former persecutor of the church, just like they. And he walked in their shoes. Well, the argument says this, because of all this emotion that Paul went through, all the, all the stop signs that it seemed the Holy Spirit was putting in place, he took himself out of the perfect will of God into the permissive will of God by going to Jerusalem. On the other side, the other school of thought, there's those that believe that Paul was to go to Jerusalem all the time, and the warnings given to him were not prohibitions, but preparations for what to expect once he got there. Many people hold one view or the other. And the conclusions may be difficult to ascertain. So we need to realize that whatever view people hold, we need to be gracious to them with the understanding that, well, this is one of those areas of Scripture where both sides may have some legitimate arguments over. And even if we disagree about which side of the fence they stand on, there's no reason to divide personally. I believe Paul didn't make a mistake in going to Jerusalem. I don't believe that he violated God's will, and, and here's why. There's seven things I want to point out. But before we get into them, before we get into these seven, I want to say this. Whenever we get to passages in the Scripture that seem confusing, or passages that seem to be a bit unclear, where there's legitimate argument or debate on both sides, the safest thing we can do is to examine it in the immediate context and then to take a broader look and look at it in a broader context. And it's important to look at this particular subject in the light of what does the rest of the Bible teach about this event? Or in another case, maybe on this particular doctrine where the scriptures are clear on a particular subject. And when we take and look at it in a broader sense, what we're doing is, as Paul instructed Timothy, he said, Timothy, rightly divide the word of truth. And this is what we must do. So with that being said, let's look and consider Paul's previous revelations that were given to him about going to Jerusalem, where he clearly sensed God's spirit leading and directing him without reservation. The first we find in Acts chapter 19, verse 21. And here's what it says. After these things were ended, Paul purposed in the Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia in Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul clearly heard from the Holy Spirit there. In Acts chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, it says, And now, behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witnessed in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. He says, I know there's trouble ahead, but the Spirit's leading me. So he goes from city to city, 
as the Holy Spirit is prophesying to him through fellow Christians that the difficulties, Paul, they're going to be awaiting you. And in spite of these concerns of the people, the Holy Spirit provides no personal prohibition to him to prevent him from going. So we see in Paul's life the importance of not allowing a single prophecy given by anyone to supersede that which we believe the Holy Spirit has instructed us to do. And Paul clearly heard from the Spirit, personally, and perhaps taking that into consideration with the other things that are being said, he had to listen to the Spirit of God as he spoke to him. And let me say this, when someone gives us a prophecy, it should be a confirmation of what God has revealed to us or a prophecy that we must take to the Lord and ask him to confirm it to us. We need to hear from the Lord. That way, if we pray and we seek the Lord and we hear from him, we have an unmistakable way of learning his will for us. And we know that Paul had a history of being warned and prepared for his trip to Jerusalem. There would be difficulties that he would face once he got there, but not that he shouldn't go. The prophecy of verse 4 kind of comes against the long history of the prophecy that Paul had personally received. And perhaps those in verse 4 were also warned of the pending danger to beloved Paul as preparatory and not prohibitive since the trip and persecution conformed to Paul's commission. Paul said, you will go to Jerusalem. The second point. When the Lord spoke to Ananias at Paul's conversion, this is back in Acts chapter 29. Ananias, if you remember, he was afraid. You know, Paul, who was Saul, he had a reputation. The reputation for murdering Christians, a reputation for hating Christians, a reputation for hating Jesus Christ. But here's what it says in chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said unto him, speaking to Ananias, Go thy way, for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my namesake. And not all of that has happened yet at this point in Acts chapter 21. He hasn't yet shared with kings. We will see this later in the scripture should the Lord tarry. But in addition to this, Paul never felt like he made a mistake. For if he did, his heart would have been convicted by God's Holy Spirit. Acts 21, verse 14 says, Paul would not be persuaded by them. In other words, he was firm in his conviction. In chapter 23, verse 1, And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. His conscience wasn't stirred that he was making a mistake. In chapter 24, verse 16, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. The third point we also see in Acts 23. Paul was imprisoned in Jerusalem. Remember, the Holy Spirit said, bonds and afflictions will await you. Well, here he is. He's in prison in Jerusalem, and Jesus met him in jail. Verse 11 tells us, in the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou also bear witness in Rome. 
Notice that it didn't say that Jesus appeared to him in the prison cell and said, I told you not to go. And this is where he ended up. No, the Lord didn't rebuke him at all. He didn't correct Paul. He said, Paul, be of good cheer. You've testified of me in Jerusalem. Now I want you to bear witness in Rome. So clearly, God knew his travels. He's going to go from Jerusalem, followed, following Rome, followed to Rome, excuse me. Well, Paul had no conviction that the prophecy in verse 4 nullified the previous prophecies that Paul received from the Lord. The fourth point. Remember, too, that Paul was an apostle. Not that apostles can't make mistakes. Judas is a classic example of that, of course. But in terms of a miraculous life, the miraculous life of the Christian and the early church, the use of spiritual gifts for wisdom, for a word of knowledge, signs, miracles, etc., the apostles were kind of in a league by their own, a league of their own. So as difficult as this news of all this persecution and incarceration was, the truth is it didn't surprise Paul at all because God had previously revealed that to him. A fifth point. When Agabus prophesied by the Spirit to the Apostle Paul, when he grabbed Paul's belt, indicating that he would be bound in Jerusalem, it was already completely consistent with God, what God revealed about Jerusalem and city after city after city previously. That yes, bonds and afflictions awaited him along his travels. And certainly you would expect that this was a very clear opportunity for the prophecy of Agabus, for the Holy Spirit of God to prohibit Paul from going. But it doesn't tell us that the Holy Spirit spoke to Paul and told him not to go. That didn't take place. And I find it hard to believe that Paul's parting words in verse 13 were spoken by a man that was in rebellion against God's Holy Spirit. He said, what mean you to weep and to break mine heart? For I'm ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Notice he didn't say, I'm willing to die for the Jewish people, or willing to die bringing the gospel to the Jewish people, or willing to die for some personal cause. He said, willing to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Obviously, he felt that he was in the will of God by going from city to city. The sixth point, the response of Paul's traveling companions and the church at Caesarea isn't consistent with the idea that Paul's in rebellion. What did they say? The will of the Lord be done. That's all they wanted. And that's all we should want. The seventh and last point. Toward the end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Paul wrote this, For I am now ready to be offered in the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And he said this without conviction of sin, without reservation, without regret, without, without any footnotes explaining this is what happened in Acts 21, but spoken as a man that just wanted to please the Lord with his life. That's all he wanted. 
and to bring the gospel forth in obedience to what God asked them to do. So as we, as we wrap up in the maze of all the, the differing opinions of good and honest, well-meaning people, ultimately God caused his will to prevail over all the differing aspects that we see here in the scriptures. You see, God's will prevailed. And that is the sovereignty of God. That is God's sovereignty. You know, nothing can derail God's sovereign will. We can fight against it, but we cannot derail it. We ought to have this same confidence that God can do the same for us too, as he did with the Apostle Paul. Amidst all the different things, the things that are coming at him from the left and from the right, you know, people sharing, sharing different things. But his heart was this, that he wanted to hear from, the, from God's Holy Spirit very personally, and he did, and God confirmed this to him. So, you know, as we conclude, this passage provides for us a very, very important application. And we may not need this application every day, but we will at some point in our lives. And the fact that it's in our heart to draw upon will prove to be very, very helpful for us at some point in the future, or maybe even today, in the circumstances we face. The passage teaches us that when we're facing a season of suffering, which we all go through, or maybe there's something that's coming, as Paul was warned, at those times, it's very, very important for us to be very discerning concerning the counsel we receive from those that love us the most. As Paul received counsel from those that loved him very, very deeply. We want to see suffering of our loved ones come to an end as quickly as possible, don't we? And as hard as it is to say sometimes and to admit, it's often at the expense of God's plan for their life or God's commands. The counsel that pours forth out of pure love from us or others, apart from prayer or seeking God's will, sometimes we can get in God's way, can't we? Because we don't fully understand what, what God is doing and how he's doing what he's doing. But as believers, we know that all things work together for the good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. And, and sometimes it means difficulty. You know, I, I didn't enjoy at all for a moment seeing our daughter or our granddaughter suffering from cancer. And we prayed, and we prayed, and we asked you to pray, God, God, please, please heal them. But you know, it always has to be tempered with, and it's not easy, family. God, your will be done. Jesus prayed that before he was executed. And praise God, God healed them to his glory. But it doesn't always work out that way. It's hard. It's very, very hard sometimes. When we see people suffering, God, would you heal them, please? And it's a good prayer. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You know, we saw this in the lives of the apostles, and one in particular, the apostle Peter. 
After Jesus announced his crucifixion to them, when he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter, what did he do? He drew out a sword and cut off a servant's ear. I'm going to put a stop to this. What did Jesus do? He put the ear back on and destroyed the evidence, didn't he? How good he is. And then in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, it it says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, and he spoke that, saying openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. It's like, Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified. No, you're not. God's will was done, wasn't it? And here we are, redeemed by the blood of our Savior, whose death, burial, and resurrection was absolutely, unequivocally needful and necessary for us to come to Christ and be cleansed of all of our sin. There is no other way. And as difficult as it was for the apostles to look at Jesus, their beloved friend, Jesus Christ, on the cross, suffering a brutal death, being crucified and put to death, ultimately they learned that he did this for a reason. And we know that, that he did it for a purpose. For Jesus came to save sinners from our sin. You know, oftentimes, and I, and, I, and I can't criticize Peter. He loved Jesus. He didn't want to see him suffer. Our heart is often like this. What, what, what can I do to bring this particular thing to an end? And, and we can pray very sympathetically, can't we? And we could provide counsel like, well, your job's tough, quit. Right? Leave it. Find a new job in order to end the pain or a season of suffering in our lives. We need to be careful about the counsel we receive and the counsel that we give. We need to make sure it's of the Lord. The real question is, what would God have me to do? And we need to ask ourselves that question before we Give counsel. God, what would you have me to speak? God, what would you have me to hear? What would you have me to do in this particular situation? We should always be open to the counsel from godly counselors. The Bible says there is wisdom in the multitude of counselors, doesn't it? But it's always best to receive encouragement from those that love us the most when we find ourselves in deep trials. We need that kind of encouragement, but then we look to others that are outside, perhaps, to offer godly advice advice and direction, and then take it all and bring it to the Lord. Lord, these are the things that I've heard. These are the things that I've witnessed. These are the things being spoken to me. God, speak to me that I would know. And if it's a tough path, if it's a difficult path, so be it. Your will be done and not mine. Listen, it's, it's, it's never easy to take the hard path, is it? Sometimes the hard path is the right path. And it's, and it's painful. But we need to seek God in these things. 
take it all to the Lord and ask him to bring confirmation of his heart and his mind of the things that you've heard or perhaps something that you haven't heard or haven't even considered. I love the, the scripture that Paul says, you know, but we have the mind of Christ. We've been given that. You need to exercise it by seeking God and his will. You know, I, I think often about people that don't yet know the Lord that struggle with such brutally difficult things like addictions, uh, anger, you know, violence, indifference, and fear. And oftentimes I find myself praying, God, remove that addiction. Change that heart. Change that attitude. Dissolve that anger. Wash away that fear. Wash away that indifference. But you know what? I'm not sure those are the right prayers. Because the solution, family, is always found in the person and character of Jesus Christ. Jesus saved them. I pray for that person's salvation. I plead the blood of Jesus Christ over that life. And that solves everything, doesn't it? Doesn't mean problems are going to go away. But the greatest need that a person would ever have would be met when they come to Jesus Christ. And I know that when I had an alcohol addiction, when I came to Christ, he took it away. Those of you that know me, you know, he took it away from one second to the next. The desire was absolutely erased. Does he work that way with everybody? No, but he didn't me. And I'm grateful for that. But you know, that's, what, a, what a great solution that is. Rather than someone saying, well, you need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm not saying that doesn't help people. You need to put the bottle away. You need to stop drinking. Well, that's not bad advice. But the best counsel is you need Jesus Christ. And he met that need. Face to face with Jesus, he shall supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. He does it. So I, I guess the, the point of this whole passage is Jesus needs to be supreme in our lives. We need to seek his direction, his guidance, personally and intimately through time with him. So whatever you may be going through, maybe today's time of prayer after service, we need to bring those things before the Lord and seek his will. And also, in a greater sense, that if there's anyone here that hasn't yet received Jesus into your heart and you're dealing with some of the things that, that I mentioned, anger, addiction, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know what they are. And maybe you're trying to suppress it somehow or trying to work your way through it somehow when the real solution is you need Jesus Christ who will bring 
healing to your hurting heart, cleansing to your soul, forgiveness of your sin. This is what mankind needs. And the world is a mess. I don't know if it's ever been in a bigger mess. I didn't live back then, but I see it now as probably more clearly than ever before in my life that the world is a mess, and the world is a mess because of rejection of our Savior. This world needs Jesus Christ because he makes all things new. New minds, new hearts, new attitudes. Hearts that are able to love and care. Hearts of compassion and concern. If you need Jesus, then please pray with me. He, it's not hard. He's done all that needs to be done. He's just asking to trust in him. Would you trust in him? Father, I come to you. Please pray with me. I come to you this morning. And I realize that the things that I've been struggling with, I've tripped and stumbled time after time after time. I need help. I need you. The scriptures say that you're a present help in trouble. So I bring my troubled heart to you. I bring my troubled life to you. I bring my sin to you and ask you to please forgive me of all of my sin. I do believe that you are the Son of God. And you took the right path, the difficult path, in laying down your life on a cross for me. Please forgive me and cleanse me. I invite you to be Lord of my life. I thank you that when you were placed in the tomb, you rose again on the third day, just as you said you would. I'm asking for help in living this life in a way that pleases you and is a blessing to me and a blessing to others. Thank you for hearing my prayer today, and I thank you for saving me. And Lord, whatever you have in store for me, I want to say these words. Your will be done. And to that I say, amen. In Jesus' name.